2: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Once ETH2 is live, immediately after the launch, there will be relatively little that will change. It's when there's some sort of integration between ETH1 and ETH2. ETH1 is still just a single shard of execution.
2: I would squeeze as much as possible out of Ethereum 1. I would actually introduce sharding logically in order to see whether the users will actually be able to use that effectively.
0: This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, Nexo.io, and Elliptic.co. Hello everyone, you're listening to Developer Perspectives, Ethereum 2.0 from Coindesk Podcasts. I'm Christine Kim, a Coindesk Research Analyst, and in this series, we'll be discussing the hotly anticipated Ethereum 2.0 upgrade. We'll chat with the folks inside the Ethereum developer community to take a look behind the scenes at what comes next. For this episode, we're going to be talking about the sharding dynamics of Ethereum 2.0. As prior guests in this series have explained, the new Ethereum network will be composed of 64 mini-blockchains called shards, all interconnected with each other through a central blockchain called the Beacon Chain. We're going to go into much more detail about the dynamics of sharding in today's episode with two highly esteemed guests. I'm joined by Kamen Nava, Technical Lead at ChainSafe Systems. Nava and his team at ChainSafe are building Lodestar, one of five software clients currently being worked on for the launch of Ethereum 2.0. Hi, Kamin.
1: Hey, Christine. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm also joined by Alexey Akunov, an independent software developer and researcher for Ethereum that has worked on projects to help scale the current Ethereum blockchain, projects such as TurboGap, Ethereum 1x, and more recently, Regenesis. Great to have you on the show, Alexey.
2: Hi, thank you for having me here.
0: So before we get into the technical details of what sharding enables on Ethereum 2.0, I'd like to start by asking a few questions on the problem that it aims to solve, namely Ethereum's transaction throughput bottleneck. Alexi, can you explain why Ethereum has a scaling issue? And practically speaking, what limitations does that result in for the network and its users?
2: Well, I guess um, this is already an interesting question because people have a different opinions on what the scaling issues Ethereum exactly has. So, from my kind of or technical point of view, the Ethereum in its current, you know, in its current form, Ethereum one, we would call it, has uh, scaling issues in terms of how many transactions uh, it could process per second. And usually people think about the first thing you could fix is the consensus algorithm. But I think that's not the correct way of looking at it. So I would say that currently the bottleneck of Ethereum is actually, in Ethereum 1, is actually the processing of these transactions, how quickly the transaction can be processed. And that in turn is, is dictated how quickly the execution engine can access what we call Ethereum state. So in the implementations where this access is slow, the execution engine cannot process many transactions. So that is the current bottleneck, but it doesn't mean that if we remove that current bottleneck, then it will all be kind of like super performant because I think when we, if we do remove that bottleneck, there will be a next one and then a next one. So there, there's a couple of those things. And I'm probably not not going to go into the details, uh, because if you, let's say that if you increase the throughput, the next problem you're going to face is that the blocks will become large, and then you need to solve that one. And then when the blocks become large, then you also have to solve the problem of how do you, you know, where do you store them, how do you propagate them, and things like this. So these are, I think, the scaling issues. And the consensus algorithm on how quickly you agree on things that come to finality, I don't think it's a bottleneck at the moment.
0: A never-ending list of problems I see. When you solve one thing, it kind of creates a domino effect of what developers will have to focus on next. Kamen, I'd like to get your opinion on what Alexi just said. Why is it that after several years of kind of research and brainstorm, Ethereum 2.0 developers have thought that sharding is the ultimate winner to take care of some of these problems? And also, why is it that sharding was the ultimate winner to be able to tackle this issue of scalability on Ethereum?
1: I do agree with Alexi's take. Why is sharding chosen? I think this is just a kind of a natural way to break things up. So if you have, if you're wanting to process a lot of data, you can, but you're not wanting any one party to be overloaded with that data, you can just kind of naturally think of breaking up your problem into smaller pieces. And so sharding just does that. Where I think sharding is going to come into play in, in most people's lives a lot sooner rather than later is less sharding of computation and more just sharding of, of the data itself.
0: Can I ask a follow-up question to that, actually?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Go for it.
0: Kevin, when you had said that this sharding would, you know, divvy up the data and make it so that there are more transactions being able to be processed on the network at any given time, I was curious to know, kind of to, to Alexi's point, are there additional problems that kind of spring up that developers need to deal with because it's a sharded system? What are your thoughts on some of the problems that it might create that ethereum 2.0 developers will have to deal with down the line
1: right so things will be a little bit more complicated when you have these shards in ethereum 2. i think that we're going to be getting like a taste of that in ethereum 1 with a lot of these l2s that are coming into play right now you can kind of think of these l2s as almost little pseudo shards of their own and so a lot of the dynamics that you are going to have to face in sharding come up in this world because one L2 cannot talk directly necessarily to another L2 natively and so you have to kind of navigate that path you need to kind of come into this L2 then you can interact with it and then leave and so that same kind of mechanic is probably going to is going to it's going to be similar to what you're seeing in sharding
0: and when you say L2, what does that mean?
1: L2 is kind of a level two, um, and usually we're thinking of level one is kind of the blockchain itself or the, the very, the native system. L2 is kind of a game built on top or a system built on top of L- L1. It's kind of a, a way that people think about problems in engineering and like in networking and the networking stack. So this is kind of the the blockchain stack. L2, there's different companies and different technologies that people are playing with, uh, roll-ups, zero-knowledge rollups, optimistic roll-ups are kind of two of the more popular ones right now. And so as these are being developed, we're, we're seeing DApp developers try to bring their DApps to this L2 because it holds the promise of immediate scaling in the near term before even ETH2 is launched.
0: I'm glad that we're already starting to talk about some of these different solutions to scaling. As you had mentioned, Cayman, there's these layer two solutions, level two solutions. Alexi, from your research and your development work on Ethereum, but also with your research of other blockchain networks, such as Cosmos, Polkadot, Cardano, from your perspective, how would you say the solution to scalability on these other platforms differs from that of sharding on Ethereum 2.0?
2: I mean, I don't. I didn't go into kind of all of them, of course. I did look at the Cosmos uh, quite closely. I did did look a tiny bit at Polkadot, in a little bit at Near blockchain, but not at Cardano. And so, what I could see is that they do take slightly different approaches to uh, solving this problem. One of the sort of like interesting thing I find in Near design, which is kind of almost what Cayman just said. You might have heard about the term rollups, right? Which is now being used. Like when you're there's all sorts of rollups being developed: zk rollup, optimistic rollups, and stuff like that. So an idea is that you still utilize the space on the blockchain, on the actual blockchain, on layer one, in terms of like the data being posted on the blockchain and confirmed. But the this data is interpreted not by the blockchain itself, but but something else. And so, for example, in Near, the, the way they did it, they actually did sharding, in as if it was actually multiple rollups. So they still have the same blockchain putting the data on, but each shard is essentially logical rather than sort of physical. So that's basically different between difference between Ethereum current thinking that in Ethereum the current thinking that each shard will be physically different because it will have a like a, a sort of its own blockchain. But, for example, people that develop the NIR, they think that the Ethereum might actually kind of converge with some of the systems once they've realized that there are some issues with design. So with Cosmos, for example, there is no sharding as such. I think they're just creating the system which can, you know, offer completely different blockchains interoperating with each other. So I wouldn't say that's sharding. And with the Polkadot, for example, they're sort of like, the, the, the I don't know if you can call it sharding, but essentially it's multiple blockchains, but being governed by the same consensus. So yeah, they they kind of all different, and I do not know which one is going to work and which one won't. So I'm a bit of a, from my point of view, I'm a bit of a sharding skeptic, to be honest. The way I would approach this problem is that I would actually do it much more gradually, and I would actually try to build sharding gradually on top of what we already have. But I do understand other people want to do things differently.
0: And when you say gradually and building it on top of what we already have, do you mean something like what NIR has done? As you explained, if they don't have physically different shards, mini blockchains, they just shard the data on one blockchain. Is that what you meant?
2: Maybe. So I think there are different ways of doing it. So if I were to Kind of to scale, to, to design the scaling, what I would do first, I would squeeze as much as possible out of Ethereum One, which is, uh, I think, which is, hasn't been done yet. And then after that, I would actually introduce sharding, yes, as you said, logically, in order to see whether the users will actually be able to, to use that effectively. Because basically, one of the assumptions of sharding, which I think is true, but you have to verify, nevertheless, that there are kind of roughly sort of independent kind of pockets of usage of transactions that are very interconnected. But between these pockets, there is not many kind of cross sections. And that's basically the assumption that sharding uses, because otherwise, if this assumption doesn't hold and everything just basically communicates to everything else all the time, then the sharding actually makes things worse. So the only system where the sharding helps is where you can logically separate things into these different segments. And these segments mostly communicate within themselves, but then there is occasionally there's some sort of communication between the segments, which I think in the sharding terminology they call cross-links. So I would actually Go and try to measure those assumptions on the live system by gradually introducing some kind of logical sharding and at the same time, kind of keeping the, the developers of the current system, so sort of bringing them on the same journey. Because I think one of my criticisms of a current approach is that they completely forked out the development team and they sort of left a lot of the developers behind. Um, so yeah.
0: On the topic of development uh, for this sharding sharded system of Ethereum 2.0 and some developers being left out, Kamen, I want to get your thoughts on what your development experience has been like working on this sharded system for Ethereum 2.0, building out the specs for it. As I understand, uh, Lodestar is one of the five clients that haven't yet been executed on the Midasha test network. Can you give a little bit of color on just the development journey that Lodestar is currently on and and your experience?
1: Great question. my perspective, it's been a a great journey. I started working on Lodestar, I think, a year and a half ago, and the project began relatively recently before that. I think it's been a very collaborative environment. All the ETH2 developers work across clients, work pretty closely with each other. We're in constant communication about just the latest spec updates and the latest optimizations and things we can do to improve. We've all gotten together in person, and so um, there's a lot of like rapport that we've built between each other. And it's just been a great environment, at least from my perspective. So as far as where Lodestar is on on its journey, uh, yeah, we are, I think, uh, the only like or one of a few active clients that has not yet joined the Madasha testnet. We are still pushing forward for that, we're still pushing for this like full client, but I think our niche is really where typescript implementation and so typescript kind of at a I don't know performance and language disadvantage compared to other clients and so our niche is not really in the full client as it is it's it's more in the typescript ecosystem typescript JavaScript is language that's available in the web and so we're ba- we're really building small modules that can be reused and used in different ways in the web and uh, for web developers and for just the millions of TypeScript and JavaScript developers that are out there. And so the the full client is, yes, it's like a juicy target. It's something we're definitely shooting for. But ultimately, I, I think that our value to the community will be more in like the tooling that we're building and our longer term goal of building a light client and light client server.
0: Definitely. I remember in a previous podcast episode also, when we were talking about some of the differences in the clients, the technical differences between their specifications, of course, are not all that different, but the vision behind their development between each of the clients is very different. So thanks for sharing a little bit about that. I also want to get your thoughts came in on what Alexi has shared thus far about some of the concerns and the downfalls that he foresees with taking this route of sharding the Ethereum blockchain and eventually merging users and DeFi apps and decentralized applications onto this new system. Do you share any of those concerns, in Do you disagree with any of them?
1: I don't disagree, but I think that this full sharded system will still be a ways out. And I think that we'll get some benefits from ETH2, long before we have this fully sharded 64 EVMs running, interoperating on this full vision, as far as I could tell, the ETH1 to ETH2 migration could, could happen sooner rather than later if it becomes less of a burden to run an ETH1 node. And we get benefits pretty quickly after that, you know, just from that integration alone, even if we don't use anything from ETH2 other than the consensus. So we can get increased security, we can reduce issuance, we get chain finality. That could happen sooner rather than later if we accept that ETH2 validators have to run an ETH1 node. And then even with a small amount of time further, if we can get to phase one, then we maybe don't need this sharded execution, but we could still use the shards just for data. And if we think about these shards as like just data for rollups, we can get a lot of scalability and we can get a lot of use in the same kind of way we're still using ETH1, just with a single ETH1 shard, like exa- or exactly what we have right now, ETH1, but just with more data. Like that, we, can get, we can get a lot of scalability and a lot of use just from that. And I think that we can kind of delay these harder problems, like how sharding should work or what it should look like. That, that, that could kind of be pushed off a little bit so we can really think about it and get it right. And then in the near term, we can get a lot of the benefits from from this ETH2 work that we've been doing.
0: This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card which pays you up to 8% cash back on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. That's the other thing about Ethereum 2.0, that it's a phased development cycle. So a lot of how you guys are planning for the subsequent years of development will depend on the activity and the kind of progress that you see in the initial phases. Alexi, I did ask Kamen about his development experience as an Ethereum 2.0 developer, but I'm also curious to know in this process how in the know Ethereum 1.0 core developers have been about the plans for Ethereum 2.0. And I'm curious to know in the future how you foresee development efforts on Ethereum merging with the development efforts of Ethereum 2.0, as you know, the the proof of stake blockchain launches, as the sharded environment gets rolled out, where do you see the cooperation, and and how do you foresee that happening?
2: Yeah, so with the um, the experience of the Ethereum one developer is probably a bit different because uh, most of the people who currently work on the Ethereum one development came in that at a time when the blockchain has already been quite large and already started to have these issues that it has now. So the, most of the people who were developing the initial implementations, which basically dealt with a very small blockchain, actually gone. And so basically what we have seen is that we now have people who have to deal with the really hard problems, which are... Kind of huge amount of data, like you have to process billion. Like if you want to sync thing from, uh, from Genesis, for example, you you literally have to process almost a billion transactions. and that's a quite a good, quite a big challenge. So you basically have to che- uh, solve uh, uh, real tough engineering problems rather than kind of sort of research problems, and that's what kind of my experience is. And so far, I have seen uh, because of that most of the people who develop Ethereum 1 clients, they're essentially kind of buried in those engineering problems so far. There aren't many of us. And so I don't think many of us have actually time to be involved in Ethereum 2. And that's one of the reasons I I wasn't involved. I was invited, but I just couldn't because there's so much stuff to solve, so much stuff to to do. And so I completely missed out on all the design and everything. So I can only like, at the moment, I can only kind of do and uh, sort of drive by, especially <laughs> this drive by criticism. And if somebody says like, oh, but why didn't you participate? I'll say, well, I'm sorry, I couldn't. I just, I was too busy developing each one. And that's kind of goes back to what I said before. is that like, yes, I would love to be on that journey, but I couldn't because I chose to, to work on the current system. From that point of view, I also see that when people say, oh, how do we have to, how do we make sure that there is a compatibility, there is an ease of transition? And I said, look, we cannot currently do a lot in Ethereum 1 to make it compatible to Ethereum 2 because it, we don't actually, our design space is very limited. There is not much we can do because the system is live. We can change this bit and that bit but we cannot do the very radical redesign. However, from the other point of view, Ethereum 2 development still is in a phase where it hasn't launched, so they can do much more in terms of compatibility. So for that reason, I mostly don't think about that problem, about this transition problem, and I keep saying that whenever somebody asks, like, well, yeah, you know, we're we in a slightly different position, so I think uh, it's harder for us to, to do that. Because, as I said, we have a much more constrained space.
0: Right. I can tell that you haven't been thinking too much about this compatibility and this migration. And that you're right. I mean, with, with Ethereum 2.0 developers not having launched Ethereum 2.0 quite yet, they do have more flexibility in being able to focus on the design on their end to make Ethereum 2.0 compatible to Ethereum as opposed to the other way around. Came in In your experience developing Ethereum 2.0, could you explain what the current plan is on moving Ethereum as a shard into the Ethereum 2.0 environment? In our previous episode, Danny Ryan had actually explained that the plan is to merge Ethereum with a kind of hot swap, a seamless transition where Ethereum will become a shard of the Ethereum 2.0 environment, but we didn't get into very much detail about users and dApp developers, you know, playing around on other shards and moving, you know, launching applications on different mini blockchains in the network. So I'm curious to know how much progress and thought has been continued to go in that direction.
1: Good question. So personally, I've been focused on just phase zero implementation. And I think a lot of the ETH2 developers really aren't, aren't really thinking about sharding in the sense that we're talking about it right now. Because we're, we're doing this phased development, this phased transition, the first phases, it's only at the very end that we actually get this sharded, this world of mini blockchains communicating to each other. In the earlier phases, we're, we're working on just the consensus or just sharded data availability. And, um, and then only at the very end, we get the mini blockchains. When
0: you say that developers are going to be focusing currently on the sharded system of Ethereum 2.0, not necessarily, say, with real users and real decentralized applications, but just with the data and getting the consensus algorithm kind of up and running, do you have a timeline of when you think that users and decentralized finance applications and Ethereum 1.0 core developers will have to start caring and will have to start Already learning about how to adjust themselves to the proof of stake network. Right now, as you're explaining, it's not something that's on the top of the agenda, but with the launch of Ethereum 2.0 coming up, perhaps, you know, maybe this year, do you have a rough timeline of when you think all this is going to be a real issue?
1: Yeah. So keep in mind, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a humble ETH2 engineer. I'm not, I don't set any timelines or anything, but once ETH2 is live, I think DeFi developers and other dApp developers, immediately after the launch, there will be relatively little that will change. It's when when we finally, when there's some sort of integration between ETH1 and ETH2, some people have called this ETH2 phase 1.5. When we do some kind of migration, at that point, ETH1 is still just a single shard of execution, but now it's using ETH2's consensus engine. At that point, or maybe shortly thereafter, we'll, we're basically going to open the floodgates of data, of ETH2 data to ETH1, create some sort of mechanism where ETH1 can access that data. At that point, we can begin to, like, these developers can actually begin to do something with ETH2. and It'll get some kind of value. I think that a lot of, like, they can start early by using these L2 systems right now, because I think that a lot of the ways that you could use this on-chain data would be very similar between the current L2 systems that are being built and used, and just this extension where you have more data to work with once you get access to these data shards on ETH2.
0: Speaking of what users and DApp developers can be doing in the meanwhile before the the transition actually happens, Alexia, I'm curious to know, your current efforts and the current projects that you're working on among Ethereum 1.0 core developers, do you think any of those projects, any of those engineering kind of problems that you guys were working to solve, do you foresee any of that greatly assisting the rollout and the functionality of Ethereum 2.0 in its charted environment? Cayman had mentioned layer two applications and services being something that users can engage with right now to kind of get a taste of adjusting to the to the new environment. Alexi, what are some of the things that you and other Ethereum 1.0 core developers are working on that you foresee will have a big impact down the line for Ethereum 2.0 sharded environment?
2: Yeah, so basically one thing I would like to so say that definitely what we're currently doing with Ethereum 1 will probably have to be applied to Ethereum 2. And the reason as follows is that I don't know exactly like the detailed plans of how there would be like a seamless switch from ETH1 and to when ETH1 becomes like a shard in ETH2, but from my point of view, the, the precondition for that happening, so I call it the virtualization of Ethereum1 to Ethereum2, and I think there used to be the plan like that. From our kind of customary knowledge of computing, is that if you have, if you want to virtualize one system inside another, so let say if you want to virtualize system A inside the system B, let's say that you have a computer B and then you want to simulate, emulate, virtualize the system B, it usually means that the system B has to be more, more powerful than the system A, otherwise the virtualization will be already much slower. So, from my point of view, the precondition of being able to virtualize ETH1 into a shard of ETH2 is that there must be some some kind of technology, which I don't know of, that would enable ETH2 shard to be more powerful than than ETH1, which I think this technology currently does not exist. And in order to virtualize ETH1, Ethereum 2 shard has to be at least as powerful as ETH1. And that means at least taking whatever what we have already achieved and uh, apply there. And also, that will take it apart, take it ahead of basically everything else which I have currently seen. So I've done a bit of an overview of the other systems which people call these two competitors. And uh, I'm I'm mostly looking, not in consensus, because I think it's largely irrelevant. I am looking at how they're utilizing the database and what are the data structure that they're using to represent the state. And I see everywhere that it's exactly the same thing. And that it's like everybody basically copied whatever is currently in Ethereum 1. And this is what we're actually improving. And I think we're going to improve it. And we're going to scale it at least times 10. And Ethereum 2 probably will have to have this technology. And we will gladly help to put it there. So that if that happens, then Ethereum 2 will have a massive advantage over any other sharding systems out there. But there has to be understanding that you can't virtualize ETH1 into ETH2 unless this technology is there. So from my point of view, given what I've just said, is that the migration from one from Ethereum 1 to two, Ethereum 2 should happen in a much more simple way. Instead of trying to virtualize it, I would say that people should simply redeploy their the important smart contracts on EAST2 when it's possible. So we used to worry about these things like MakerDAO, Uniswap, or what have you. People used to think or used to argue that, oh, these things have to be carried over somehow, like seamlessly from one system to another. But what we're seeing, these things keep upgrading all the time and people just migrating. That These migrations actually happen Within days, within weeks, and stuff like this. So Uniswap now has version three, and did everybody migrated? <laughs> like, why can't Uniswap have version five on its two, and everybody just migrate? I mean, uh, and I think most of the systems, most of the DeFi applications, can simply migrate that way, and you don't have to have this massive effort of trying to make some kind of seamless virtualization sort of effort because. Most of the stuff can happen really naturally with people simply moving the ether through and all the tokens can be migrated by third parties. I mean, I don't see a huge problem of doing that. It's not like it's happening every day, right? It's it's one in a lifetime event, so people can actually do that.
0: Cameron, what are your thoughts on just users themselves and dApp developers taking on the responsibility of just redeploying their contracts, redeploying their applications, onto Ethereum 2.0 as opposed to recreating everything that is on Ethereum and merging that into Ethereum 2.0. Do you think that what Alexia has proposed is a a more simpler solution or does that kind of open up a portion of the community to reject Ethereum 2.0 and just not move over?
1: So my hope is that the transition, when it happens, we can simply extend ETH1 and not need to re- have everyone redeploy their apps. But I do think that what Alexi said about this eventual redeployment or this like, when we do actually have shards in the future, if there's a new type of virtual machine that we're running, if it's eWASM, for instance, that we decide to go with, then at that point in the future, people, if they want to be using those shards, then they will need to be redeploying their those contracts there because likely that virtual machine will not be backwards compatible with the EVM. In the medium term though, I, my, my hope is that the direction we end up going extends what we already have instead of like replacing it entirely.
0: Could you briefly explain what you meant by eWASM?
1: So yeah, so eWASM uh, is this technology that the team's working on. They've been working on it for a few years at the Ethereum Foundation it's kind of supposed to be the, the successor to the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine. And it's, a, it's based on Wasm's WebAssembly standard that has had a lot of rigorous thought around it. It's used in the web by a lot of really big organizations. And so eWasm is an extension to that. We're kind of hooking into a lot of existing tooling and a lot of hard work that's been done by a lot of people and just kind of adding a few extensions, some Ethereum-specific extensions to it. So that's kind of like one potential direction to go. If we had a new type of virtual machine, that, that's one direction we could could go with it.
0: One other question actually came in about the Madasha test network, even though I know Lodestar isn't on there right now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume that, you know, you've been keeping up with what's going on on that test network. Do you know if if sharding is already deployed there and already kind of up and running in that test networking environment? Or is it still just focused on the beacon chain and just getting that up and running?
1: Yeah, so that test net is just the beacon chain. So as, as far as I know, none of the client teams in, in ETH2 have fully implemented sharding in its kind of grand design. Some teams have started prototyping with just data sharding and they're beginning to, we're beginning to start work in that direction. But right now, most people are really heads down, like let's get ETH to phase zero, just the beacon chain. We need to get that shipped. And so that's where a lot of the energy is at.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So probably more test networks to come as it relates specifically to this sharding functionality, which seems like a fairly big portion of what Ethereum 2.0 is meant to be. I want to ask you two one final question on this topic of Ethereum 2.0 sharding. And it relates to this other topic of blockchain interoperability and competition among smart contract blockchain platforms. With Ethereum 2.0 intended to be this network of multiple different mini blockchains, how easy do you guys foresee it being that the new network is going to be fully interoperable with other cryptocurrencies and smart contract blockchain platforms? And how do you see that kind of impacting competition for users and dApps in the smart contract blockchain space. Alexi, do you want to go first?
2: This is not the area that I have researched much. I think it all kind of depends what do you mean by interoperability. There is um, obviously a lot of the work done, for example, by kind of Cosmos, Tendermint team, and they develop in the IBC protocol, which is inter-blockchain communication, which they say is agnostic to the blockchains. I don't know details about this, but this is something that, you know, it could be easily implemented on a a new blockchain if you really wanted to. to, to. The Ethereum, for example, one of the issues with the interoperability is that it sometimes does lack some of the cryptographic sort of primitives to be able to uh, interoperate and also it lacks the finality in a con- uh, consensus, uh, which also uh, prevents some of this interoperability. So I would say that any kind of blockchain, which is flexible enough to imp- introduce a new cryptographic primitives, like verification of certain signatures and things like this, or verification of some computational integrity proofs, or some people call it zero-knowledge proofs, but It's kind of more general. And uh, if it has uh, some kind of finality rule, then I think it should be pretty easy to link it up with other blockchains with certain properties. That, for example, kind of means that the blockchains like Bitcoin and currently Ethereum are not currently so great with this interoperability thing. For example, people tried to, let's say, make a bridge between Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, which I it should be easy, right? But it's not easy because of the proof of work. It doesn't give you finality. But I think it could be solved problem, to be honest. And it's not specifically directed to sharding. Um, what I would say though is that you need to look at what interoperability actually means. Do you want do you mean that you can shift tokens from one place to another, or do you mean that you can run computations across multiple things, which is much harder? Um, yeah, so it could be understood in a different sense.
0: Right, right. But on this topic of you know diff- deploying different virtual machines, different cryptographic proofs, wouldn't that be possible on these shards, these different, one of the 64 shards, being able to create these different execution environments, so to speak? Cayman, you could probably speak more to that because you know development in that area. Do you foresee that interoperability? Between say Ethereum and an Ethereum classic, Ethereum and Bitcoin being just that much easier with the ethereum 2.0 sharded system, um, and how do you foresee that kind of impact and competition in the space?
1: Right, so if we decide to go in this execution environment direction, that does open some doors for some really some deeper kinds of interoperability, but I think that even just with what we have on eth1 may be enough for a lot for a lot of people for a lot of types of interoperability just like token transfers and things like that. We already have kind of a mechanism to already upgrade ETH1 as it is, these Ethereum improvement proposals, the EAPs. We've put new pr- cryptographic primitives inside ETH1 as kind of cheap computations to run. So we can, uh, we can upgrade ETH1 to be, to be interoperable with other platforms if they use different cryptographic primitives and we can, so we can verify things on other blockchains. And so I, I think just even with what we have, there's a good chance for a lot of interoperability.
0: Gotcha. This has been a very, a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Kamen and Alexi, for chatting with me about the sharding dynamics of Ethereum 2.0. We've
1: been really, really fun really interesting. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was great. Thank you.
0: This has been another episode of Developer Perspectives Ethereum 2.0. For everyone listening, you can find social media links to connect with Kamen and Alexi in today's show notes. Once again, I'm Christine Kim, Research Analyst at Coindesk. And if you haven't already, please do check out our Ethereum 2.0 Explainer Report, which is available now and free to download on the Coindesk website. The report features additional commentary from Ethereum 2.0 developers, and cool visualizations explaining the dynamics of the network. You can stay up to date with the Coindesk research team and be the first to hear about our new reports, webinars, and definitely new podcast episodes on Twitter by following at CoindeskData. Thank you for listening. Talk to you guys next time.